You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast produced by Veteran Strategies and featuring conversations with fascinating and impactful men and women who have shaped our world, our communities, and our history. My name is Robert Vane, Principal of Veteran Strategies, and your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, an Indiana-based public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and NFP, a national insurance broker with strong local content. Our podcast is featured on the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV. You may find Leaders and Legends at allindianapodcastnetwork.com. Thinking of starting a podcast or need to host a public meeting? Let Leaders and Legends LLC be your partner as you look for new ways to communicate your message. Please contact Chris Spangle and me at leadersandlegends.net. As always, all our podcast interviews are dedicated to the legacy and generosity of P.E. McAllister. Howie Politics and State Affairs Pro offer insider election coverage, polling, and analysis in Indiana. Our nonpartisan news and legislative tools create a winning combination pro subscribers can't live without. For all the resources you need this election season and beyond, visit pro.stateaffairs.com slash IN. That's pro.stateaffairs.com slash IN. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is Christopher Anderson, quickly acclaimed author of 18 New York Times bestsellers and three dozen books, which have been translated into more than 25 countries worldwide. Two of his books, The Day Diana Died and The Day John Died, about JFK Jr., reached number one on the bestseller list. A former contributing editor of Time and longtime senior editor of People, Anderson has also written hundreds of articles for a wide range of publications, including the New York Times, Life, and Vanity Fair. Mr. Anderson has appeared frequently on such programs as Today, Good Morning America, NBC Nightly News, CBS This Morning, 2020, Anderson Cooper 360, Dateline NBC, Entertainment Tonight, and many more. He is the second member of the Anderson family to join us. And he has a tough act to follow as Kate Anderson Brower came on a few years ago to discuss her works on the White House, the presidents, and the first ladies. Mr. Anderson is joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast to discuss his latest work, The King, Life of Charles III. Mr. Anderson, thank you for coming on the podcast. Uh, thank you. Who was that person you were describing? He just sounds absolutely fascinating. All I know is he's got a beautiful home and a full head of hair. <laughs> so so congratulations, idea. Mr. Anderson. Your, your home looks like a movie set. <laughs> it's because it I looks like Rod Sterling to walk through there. <laughs> well, you know, it's the Seinfeld apartment, and it's the only way I can get through Zoom calls without uh, <laughs> well, falling backwards. 
I got gotcha. you. I, I get a lot of comments on it, and sometimes <laughs> it completely derails a lot of business meetings. But thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Uh, Pleasure to be here. You're, as I said just before we started recording, you're a longtime journalist, so we're not going to bury the lead here. Yes. The news that is enveloping the royal family, mm. yeah, the book by Prince Harry called Spare and their Netflix series, given your extensive research and knowledge of the Windsors, the current British royal family. Take a few minutes, please, and just give us your thoughts on A, Harry and Meghan, and William and Kate, which is kind of the 21st century version of Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice. <laughs> I don't know about that, but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> and I how it's all a... crawling the bed together. It's not going to happen. <laughs> and how it's going to, it is affecting. Yeah. Uh, King Charles III. Well, well, you know, it, there's an interesting line in the book, apparently, which technically hasn't been released yet. You know, it's right. only leaked through the Spanish publisher. Uh, but um, the uh, what apparently at one point during Philip's funeral, uh, the two brothers got together and uh, with Charles briefly, and they began to argue, uh, as might have been expected. And uh, Charles said, "Please don't make my final years miserable." And I think that's what's happening. I mean, here's a guy who's waited his entire life, 70 years, to, uh, you know, a plus, uh, to take on this role, to take on this job. And uh, at a critical time when he really needs to get the British people behind him to kind of create that bond of affection and loyalty with his subjects that his mother had and he does not have yet, uh, he does not need his sons to be feuding and very, very publicly. So uh, it's a it's a critical time for the monarchy. It's a critical time for for the royal family. As far as I'm concerned, you were asking about how about the uh, what what Meghan and, and and Harry are doing. I mean, I think even their staunchest allies now are beginning to wonder what all the whining is about. You know, I mean, they've gotten their degree of independence. They've gotten uh, they've made these fantastically lucrative deals with Netflix and publishers. Um, and uh, so what else can be said? I mean, Harry, I mean, William and, and, and Charles have remained silent. I don't think it's going to last. I think the king is going to definitely take some retaliatory move. This book is explosive. You can see it's going to, it's already, I mean, it's wonderful for people who are interested in the royal family because Harry is pulling no punches here. He's talking about incident after incident. One of them where his brother, as you know, uh, allegedly attacks him and kind of hurls him to the floor and this sort of thing over over Megan. Um, but it's, it's uh, uh, I think it's going to be the final nail in the coffin. And I think the, the king has one thing he can do, and that is uh, take away their royal status, which they still have the HRH designation. Right. not supposed to use it, but unlike the case with Diana, when Diana was stripped of her royal status, the, the HRH, her royal highness status, um, Megan and, and Harry still have it. So that could be taken away from them. Their titles could be taken away from them. I don't think there's any hope of Archie and Lily, uh, the Sussex's children, uh, ever becoming uh, right. Prince. They might have been, but that's not going to happen now. So, yeah, a lot, a lot of things are in motion here. And Charles is the center of the act. And he is. And King Charles III has said multiple times that he wants a stripped down British monarchy reflective right. of the 21st century. 
Right, but he also wants all the pomp and ceremony and, and magnificence. I mean, uh, you know, uh, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. I mean, that could be the <laughs> motto of the Russian, of the, of the British royal family. Well, and the Romanovs too, but that's a whole other story. Uh, it, you know, it's the mystique. Um, I have a, cha a chapter in the book that refers to something that was said by a well-known British historian. Uh, you, you must not, uh, what was the phrase? Um, you must not let daylight in upon mm -hmm. magic because once the people know that you know it, it, it the, the jig is up so i think uh he wants to maintain that pomp and ceremony and grandeur and he's also somebody who's lived the royal life and i and i write of course about his heartbreaking childhood which i think makes charles the man he is today and it is a, a very bleak and sad and heartbreaking childhood isolated isolated childhood and um you know somebody who's were used to getting his way, who knew he would, he would be king and therefore developed this kind of odd combination of, of, of uh, victimhood and insecurity combined with um, uh, a, sense, a grand sense of entitlement. Now, in fairness, if, if a king can't, <laughs> if anybody can be, have a sense of entitlement, it will be the king of England. You know? <laughs> did, did, coming. Harry and Meghan seem to... to a lot of the coverage here and you live here in the United States, but across the pond and here right. in the colonies, mm -hmm. it seems like they just want to eat chocolate all day and never gain weight. Right. That's a, they want to use the, what, what'd you say? That's, that's a great line. I like that. Yeah. That, that seems to be what's, what's going on. I will say that in Britain, you know, their popularity has just plummeted. Right. Um, and that, but unlike, well, I mean, you know, they still have their defenders here. Many of them. I think, don't you think that the documentary really uh, rubbed a lot of people the wrong way, even people who were there? More so than, you know, you've read a ton of British history. I've read a ton of British history. They've accepted some sort of stratification of society, whether it's because of the royal family or the, or the titles that date back centuries. The United States and Americans, we don't, we don't play that game. And, you know, when you're whining about your life right. in a, 10,000 square foot mansion and you could war tiaras and you know, you're right. making all this money and everything's so terrible. I right. just, my sense is the American people just look at you and go, well, let me tell you about terrible lives. Why don't yeah. you come here and take a look? Yeah. <laughs> what do you think? Well, you know, I have, I have uh Catherine Heppard's uh, photograph. I was a friend of hers actually, but interviewed her many times, wrote books about her right over my shoulder here. And the queen tried to meet Kate Heppard many times. And Kate kept, I, I, and then she refused to do it. She said, because I'm an American. We got rid of kings and queens a long time ago. <laughs> I mean, you got to kind of really respect that, that kind of moxie. But I did say to her, oh, come on, you know, there, let's make exceptions here. It's not George III we're talking about. Um, but uh, you're right. But on the other hand, there's a fascination. It's a, it's a fairy tale gone wrong. You know, it's, uh, it's, uh, we're fascinated by them because, uh, you know, there's always been this bond between Americans and, you know, let's face it, the, the mother country and in a sense, culturally, anyway, speak the we same can, language makes a big difference. We can look at the monarchy without having to bow to it. And that's a huge difference. Yes. And, and I think what makes it more interesting here is that we have, uh, you know, the queen, look, we knew who the queen was. The difference between the Charles and, and Queen Elizabeth is that, you know, as I write in the opening line of the book, she was this colossus uh, astride you know why man why man he doth bestride our narrow world like a colossus there you are but clutching her handbag and, <laughs> <laughs> and 
and, and you know, she was always there. I mean, one statistic, uh, which I love, uh, says that 95% of the Earth's population only knows the world with the queen in it, only knew a world with the queen in it. So we all felt we knew her. She, she certainly, that's because she knew herself. Uh, unlike uh, Charles, who I think is still very much a work in progress. He's paradoxical, enigmatic, and, and it all began again in the beginning because as a child, Winston Churchill looks at this three-year-old kid, very withdrawn, very thoughtful, and says, you know, uh, for a child, he, he thinks too much. And I think that's very true. I think he's surprisingly um, introspective and intellectual on a certain level. And um, because of that, you know, he's been just riddled with self-doubt. And he had no parental support. I mean, unlike the queen, who really had, because she had originally, until she was 10, was not going to be the monarch. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, she had a very, I don't want to say a normal childhood, certainly, but she had uh, uh, the support and love of her mother and father. Uh, this is something that Charles never had. I mean, he saw them 15 minutes in the morning and 15 minutes, the nannies took him in. And that was typical, right? That's typical of children of the sovereign. I mean, there's even allusion sure. to it in the movie, The King's Speech, that you get presented and then you get, then they go on to do other things. So in terms right. of royalty raising their children, right. or, you know, the, the direct line of the throne, that's right. common. What that's I found surprising in what you wrote was that Charles didn't experience that from his own mother. And mm -hmm. you'd have to figure that Queen Elizabeth would look upon upon her time as a kid as you know one of the best times of her life so why wouldn't she want to replicate it right well something as her first secretary said uh private secretary that something uh, was sealed off emotionally in her she was a very unemotional woman i think it was because this huge job was dumped on her at the age of 25 uh and she uh focused on that and that was it and of course philip had a horrendous uh, childhood oh uh, absolutely terrible speaking of the romanovs Yes, exactly. Yes. He, uh, that's a whole other story, isn't it? Uh, yeah. All that DNA, you know, but um, what, what I think is interesting is that, you know, he did form a bond with his grandmother, which he talked about. And of course, with Mabel Anderson, Charles's uh, uh, nanny, uh, who is still alive. <laughs> and wow. uh, yeah, and he's still close to. And she was the only one allowed to repair his teddy bear, which he still has. We will not discuss that <laughs> in any great detail, other than to say he's always been dependent on. on I these promise. Little, yes, these little totems and things. Peculiar guy, eccentricities, but that's the British way. But, you know, he was um, isolated from the beginning. I've always said that the most touching moment, I thought, uh, incident, it, said, it just speaks volumes, is the time when he, he's four years old, his mother goes on her first uh, uh, um, tour of the Commonwealth. She comes back six months later. He rushes up to meet her and and he uh, she just kind of brushes him aside. No, not you. And talk and greets the adults. And then by the time it's his turn, she literally you know reaches down and shakes his hand as if he were a 42 year old man. I mean, that that's on video. That's on film. You know, we have that incident. I think that was the nature of their relationship. He didn't have one with either parent. And when they sent him away to these horrendous boarding schools, I would achieve and then um, we did the school in. in near london and then there's uh gordonston in scotland which i write about in detail he was literally mm -hmm. tortured you know by the other i mean we would look at this now as uh, physical and emotional abuse on the part of other older students and even teachers uh at that school and yet his pleas to please be brought home you know tear-stained letters you know uh 
we're just ignored. They just wanted to toughen him up. And, uh, and as a result, he's a very emotionally damaged person on a certain level, I think. And there was no or little difference between how he was treated publicly and how he was treated privately. Right. Well, no, publicly, in the sense that he was the heir. In, to the, in the sense that, you know, you mentioned, and this has been in a lot of the reviews of your book, which, by the way, are all positive, the terrific reviews of your book, yeah. that incident is mentioned. And I could see how the queen could act that way publicly, like, let me do my queen stuff and then I'll be your mother. But I mean, a lot of us act differently with our children in public when they're younger, as opposed to, you know, in the privacy of our own home. And you're saying is it was the same, same freezer everywhere. Right. And I don't think she was capable of really any kind of an emotional relationship with him. But of course, the really hurtful thing is, uh, you know, the uh, Anne, who was treated the same way by her mother, actually was uh, had a, a, a wonderful relationship with Philip, who saw her as a kindred spirit, as kind of a you know a, mm-hmm. a kind of a rough and tumble kid, and uh, they bonded. So then, when Andrew comes along and Edward, these are the younger, much younger children, and then at that point, the Queen suddenly decides, well, I'm going to have something approaching a normal relationship with my children. So Charles is an odd man out from the very beginning, and all of his siblings have somebody to love, as it were, in the family. <laughs> he never did, and it's it's. Uh, Again, I think he, he uh, conflates that with the love of the British people. I think he's now saying, well, you know, one of his, his lines that's been repeated over the years, is, why do they love her and not me? That started with Diana, really, um, uh, because, of course, she was adored and he was very jealous of that. And that was one of the factors in the deterioration of their relationship. Uh, but not the main factor. Camilla was the main factor. But uh, it was a crowded marriage. A crowded marriage. There were three of them in that marriage. To quote the princess. <laughs> well, I've got to say, I'm, a, I'm on team Diana and always have been. I, I, people continually, and I'll take a detour here, but they're always trying to, you know, um, draw parallels between the situation that Megan found herself in, or even Kate found herself in. The difference there is that Diana was alone up against the, the uh, monarchy and the, the firm. Yes, the firm. Uh, you know, and she didn't have anybody at her side. I mean, you know, William has Kate, and uh, they have each other, and uh, Harry is, has Meghan. I mean, it's not a, a similar situation. This There would have been no problem had uh, Camilla not been in the picture, I don't think. I don't know if, if you're familiar with uh, British historian Sarah Gristwood. She writes a lot on the Tudor period. She wrote a biography of Churchill. I interviewed her just a few days ago uh-huh. and said on this very topic that you mentioned, and it's perfect segue, I said, true or false, Kate Middleton is the royal family's secret weapon. And she goes, oh, you bet it is. Or oh, you sure. bet she is. Absolutely. Yeah. What do you I, think? Oh, totally. I'm totally, uh, again, I think I think she's, uh, I don't think she's underestimated either. I think she's uh, a powerhouse. And her staying power was um, Wady Katie, remember, for 10 years, she was there, uh, you know, being uh, uh, dangled in front of the British people. But he, she was, she was, you know, she's the first true commoner, uh, or will be, to, to uh, be queen. Uh, people forget that she's descended from coal miners, you know, that her, for a time her mother lived in public housing, that her mother was a, an airline, a flight attendant, I mean, and who built her own really remarkable business from scratch. Uh, so yes, she went to private schools. Kate Middleton did. Uh, she hobnobbed with the aristocracy, indeed, but uh, she wasn't born into it, you know. And uh, so I think that's a remarkable leap 
much more so than someone like, well, obviously Megan marrying into the family is, a, um, is something, but. But Diana was part of the aristocracy. So, yeah, what, she, and there's no question. As a matter of fact, she was, she referred to the royal fa- the family as a, as the Germans, you know, because she was far, she was <laughs> far right. more English than they were. Right. Oh yeah. No, no. And she used to call, I love this one. She used to call, well, she called famously Camilla the Rottweiler, you know, and Camilla called her Barbie. That was her nickname for, uh, for Diana, but uh, Diana used to call Charles the boy wonder, which I always thought was great. <laughs> well, a few minutes ago, you talked about the magic, you know, never let, and I think Prince Philip, you correct me if I'm getting the person wrong, but I think it was Prince Philip who, when they were complaining or someone was talking about all the appearances and all the requests and do this, you got to do this and please come to this and please come to that. And someone was saying, how do you handle all the requests? Was, was it Prince Philip or someone else who said, the only time we need to worry is when they stop asking. Ah, that sounds like something he'd say. <laughs> well, he's one, you know, again, um, I know people have developed a sort of a warm spot for him, but I, I don't know. He, he was very abusive uh, to Charles, uh, humiliated him in public, uh, he reduced him to tears even as a young man. Uh, and Charles could never please him. And, you know, there was, uh, that was a really toxic relationship. Um, you know, if, if the queen was remote and cold and aloof and all those things that Charles said she was, uh, Philip was down a bully, you know, classic bully. So, but yes, uh, indeed, you're right. They need to have the public interested, and uh, we are, you know, they keep doing enough to keep us watching. You're listening to the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest is author Christopher Anderson. He's discussing his latest book, The King, The Life of Charles III. You mentioned. Uh, Charles's close relationship with Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother. We just, a few weeks ago, interviewed Gareth Russell, who wrote the book, The Fizzy Life of Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother. I forget the exact title, Dry Wit, Wet Gin or something to Dry Wit, but it's The Fizzy Life. If you haven't read the book, Mr. Anderson, you should. It is hysterical. It sounds like it's all about drinking. It is. (laughs) It is. my the whole group especially and the queen too you know oh that's great. right it's a wonderful book but mm-hmm. in that book is detailed for a little bit the um relationship between prince charles and queen elizabeth the queen mother talk you mentioned it a few minutes ago give us a little more detail on how he went to her well he you know as, as a young child she saw in him a sensitive boy and and a thinker and uh philip saw weakness uh, he, he thought, uh, which at the time would have been a big concern for somebody like uh, uh, Philip, that, that, that uh, perhaps Charles was gay, which, which would not have gone over well with, with the hyper-masculine uh, Philip. Um, and, and he was very, um, uh, de- became very dependent on, on the Queen Mother, whom he, of course, described later on at her death as the most magical kind of grandmother you could ever hope to have she defended him but don't forget with the grandmother uh the queen mother who invented that title for herself people think that's, that's right although she she made that all up uh she hated philip and and he hated her <laughs> so much so that she wanted to live at the, at, the, at, at windsor and 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 uh, he actually had the heat turned off to drive her out of the house early in his marriage with the queen do you think do you think the queen mother hated prince philip more than she hated the duchess of windsor Oh God, no, 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 no. He was a no, no, no. Wallace Simpson was in a completely different uh, sphere. The whole royal family detested her. Thought she, you know, 
basically Queen Mother blamed Wallace Wallace Simpson for killing, you know, George the the sixth, uh, putting this great burden on this guy who was uh, thought to be very fragile, uh, and physically he was. I mean, he died. He was, yeah, yeah. But the Queen, you know, I mean, the, the thing about Charles that I find fascinating is, and one of the one of the quirky things, and is how many times he's cheated death over the years. You know, A plane crash. Or helicopter oh. crash, excuse me, and well, he had assassination well, he also, attempt. Right, uh, he had also uh, when he was doing a parachute uh, RAF training, he got his uh, feet tangled in the the lines of his parachute, and he was upside down and just righted himself just in the nick of time. Uh, he just recently revealed that when he was at Trinity College uh, at Cambridge, he was on his bike and was hit by a bus, and he just got up and he thought. I'm alive. How is this possible? Um, had he died in either of those incidents, uh, we would be looking at King Andrew, which I think would be a fine, interesting. You know, his well, you mentioned of- earlier about Queen Elizabeth loving her two younger kids. I mean, clearly she spoiled the living heck out of Prince Andrew, and look how he turned out. And the relationship between Charles and Andrew appears to be bitter and cold. Well, it what you know, it has always it has been. Oddly enough, though, Charles, he, Charles allowed Andrew to go on the, mm-hmm. the Christmas walk uh, at church this year, which I thought was peculiar. He also let him wear his uniform to the Queen's, at the Queen's funeral. He, in the first appearances, uh, Harry was not allowed to wear his uniform. Later on, they, they changed right. that, allowed him to. But, um, so I don't know if this is a so- – it's weird. Is there a softening going on? I know re- uh, between uh, Charles and his attitude toward Andrew, maybe he thinks – he needs to keep as many family members, you know, on the team as he can, given the uh, situation with Harry. I mean, always, sure. uh, you know, that's the other thing. I mean, there's no question that he and Diana, of course, thought Harry and his wife would be standing on that balcony, you know, for years alongside uh, King Charles. But that doesn't look like it's happening. When you read a biography or even just articles about Charles, he grew up and came of age in such a turbulent time. Obviously mm. here in the United States, we're talking the sixties, early seventies, but in other places worldwide, you had the troubles going on between Ireland with Ireland and great Britain around that time. How did growing up, you know, a baby boomer for lack of a better term affect yeah. and shape Charles? Well, I'm his age. So it, I think it's remarkable. I don't think I don't think of him as a contemporary, and I don't think he thinks of himself that way. You know, he just doesn't seem like a child of the '60s. He doesn't seem like he's listening to to Led Zeppelin or you know the Beatles backward songs. No, <laughs> right. Well, I, I went to Berkeley in the '60s, so that'll give you an idea. Of, you know, that was uh, that was the center of the whole thing, the counterculture. But uh, yeah, but and I was a reporter then too, so it was a lot of fun. Um, but Charles. Uh, he had this huge crush on Barbara Streisand, you know, which I write about in the book. And uh, their relationship became very friendly, uh, so to speak. And uh, so that was, I think that was the level that he was at. He was kind of a, almost a, you know, it was almost as if he was more of a, of a someone who grew up in the 40s, 50s, that kind of thing. But he still has uh, a desire to move ahead and to modernize the monarchy. He's one of these people that I think, you know, again, the paradoxes, he, he is still an enigma. I mean, we don't, Think of him as somebody who would have gone through uh, Jungian, you know, therapies and uh, that sort of thing. Talks to his plants, we know about that. That's one of his uh, 
he has a spiritual side. He um, he's just more complex than I think most people realize. It's almost a person of the earth. Yes, one of the. But he's quite. Again, I think he's uh, uh, got his hands full with the current situation, and uh, uh, we'll see if he, you know, if, if the monarchy succeeds and thrives, it'll be because of him, and if it goes down in flames, it'll be because of him. But growing up in the late 60s and that sort of era, I mean, you covered it, obviously, and grew up, as you just mm -hmm. said. I wasn't born till 67, so I'm a Gen Xer like your daughter, so we're the happiest people on Earth because, you know, we had <laughs> we had Prince and MTV. <laughs> <laughs> but did he ever have a phase yeah. or a mood or, you know, I can't think of the term to use where he questioned authority and he's like, Hey, look, it's not as like it used to be in the Victorian age, which, you know, or Edwardian age in which his mother and father grew up. Did he have a rebellious period? What does he, uh, <laughs> does he want that? You know, I mean, I want, you know, he wants to maintain the, uh, the status quo to a certain extent because he's going to be sitting on top of the heap. I don't really think there was a time when he was, you know, when he was at, at uh, Cambridge, you would have thought that would have been the time for him to rebel. But uh, no, he chose not to. Uh, he, as a matter of fact, saw his uh, his fellow students as scruffy and grubby, and he used all sorts of horrible things uh, in his uh, letters home and his uh, and in his diaries to describe the contempt he had for. Uh, his fellow students who you know that again those were the people protesting against the vietnam war and that sort of thing counterculture type um so he, he could hardly wait to get out of college and move on to the military where i think there was a better fit for him um definitely you are listening to the leaders and legends podcast our guest today is christopher anderson and we are sponsored by veteran strategies an indiana-based public relations enterprise and sponsored, again, by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and NFP, a national insurance broker with strong local content. Mr. Anderson, let's, let's fast forward to something that I can remember. Actually, right. I remember when it happened. And how it affected then Prince of Wales, Charles. Right. And that's the assassination of Lord Louis Mountbatten, Earl of Mountbatten in 1979 by the IRA. It right. was huge news around the world at the time. Mm. Mountbatten and um, you may have covered it actually back in, back then, but Prince Charles and Earl Mountbatten were very, very close. Right. You know, I never met uh, Mountbatten, but I did encounter him once on the street and on fifth avenue towering figure he's at know? a central casting isn't he i mean like if you're going to oh. catch someone in a movie to play somebody royal it's him exactly he must have been six he seemed as if he was seven feet tall let's put it that way. <laughs> but uh and of course if, for people my age and a little older you know he was just this world war ii uh iconic figure historic figure you know, uh, Lord Mountbatten of Burma, all the, you, you know, you, you, you couldn't help but be uh, impressed by him. Uh, when he was uh, you know, blown up by the IRA, of course, it was a crushing and devastating loss for Charles. I mean, Charles viewed Mountbatten as his real father, you know, as people, he, thought, he viewed him more as, as a grandfather 
father figure. Mountbatten had his own plans, you know, to want to, and there's no mistake, it's not an accident now that it's no longer the Windsors, but the Mountbatten Windsors. He managed to get in there because he was, he was a, a great grandchild of Queen Victoria. And the uh, Mountbatten's were the Battenbergs and changed the their name. Oh, oh, please. They're all German. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's a very Germanic group. Uh, yeah. Uh, and boy, the most German of all in, in many ways was, I think, Philip. I mean, wow. But um, indeed, uh, it, was, it was a horrible loss for him. And of course, it was because Diana, when she met him in 79, expressed, and uh, they were walking through a field, uh, he was uh, dating Diana's uh, sister, Sarah, at the time, Charles was, and, uh, but he had a little time alone with uh, this very young woman, Diana, and she said how sorry she felt for him, and she could see how the loss on his face and that he was grieving, and, and this touched him at the time, apparently. Um, but I have to say, uh, you know, I can remember this takes me back to being at covering the uh, silver uh, jubilee in, in 77 77 the queen's uh, marking the queen's uh, 25th anniversary on the throne may I ask you another quick question did you cover the queen when she came here to celebrate the bicentennial in 76 i did not i mean personally i mean i was i was in charge of people's uh, i'm trying to think of what uh, you know well, in essence, I was a senior editor of People Magazine, and one of my jobs was to uh, was covering the uh, the Royals uh, starting in 1974. But I'd already been writing. I was the Time Magazine was writing about them in the early 70s as well. But what I remember about the 25th anniversary specifically was I was we were in Westminster Abbey. It was the Maundy Thursday uh, thing mm -hmm. that they did, and for some reason we were uh, I was right sitting uh, next to the royal enclosure, as it were. And the royal family came in, and it was the whole bunch. Um, everybody <laughs> was there, but, but remember, but remember, Diana wasn't in the picture yet. And so I'm looking at all these people, and it was a you know everyone knew them; they're very famous. But it's a in retrospect, it was a pretty drab group. I mean, they were a waxworks bunch. And I guess uh, Charles was 27 at the time, and it wasn't until like six months later, seven seven or eight months later, when Diane enters the picture that suddenly you have this injection of, you know, life and glamour and, and all the things that she brought yeah. to it. And so it was very, it's just a very different world, you know, uh, even though the crown, for example, shows that there was a tremendous amount of action behind the scenes that, that people weren't aware of. But it was Diana who really, uh, you know, was a breath of fresh air. Well, let me ask you a, a very, either a very complex question <laughs> or a very simple question. Why did Charles marry Diana? Ah, uh, well, someone said he made the mistake of marrying his trophy wife first. <laughs> <laughs> no, look, he was forced into it. Uh, you know, uh, Philip said, you know, hey, you're, you're, you got to make a decision. You got to move on. She was, uh, and she was vetted, well, people don't realize, and I write about this in some detail, by Camilla. Camilla got together with another one of Charles's mistresses, uh, Lady Tryon, Kanga Tryon. And they went through over a list of women who would be appropriate kind of mothers for the you know future heir, uh, and um, and Diana was always at the top of the list. So there's Diana, perfectly aware of what's going on. And again, a number of incidents where she's, by the time she's uh, walking down the aisle, she knows she's destined. This marriage is not going to work because there is Camilla, sitting with her son in her lap, uh, standing on the chair, 
next to her and um and watching it all and she's and 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 um diana you know eventually remembers recalls uh as she's walking down the aisle not being able to take her eyes off camilla in her gray suit and gray pillbox hat just grinning from ear to ear because she set the whole thing up um so yes it was a mess from the very from the get-go that marriage and uh and of course it all played out in the in the papers and the headlines and the scandals that went on for 17 years do you think charles was ever in love with her no but she was in love with him that was the problem uh like every schoolgirl, like every you know don't forget he was the he was the number one bachelor uh for a whole generation and uh, she was part of that generation so she had his picture on the wall the same way that girls had you know william's picture on their wall uh the next generation but uh and i think that's the tragedy of it all you know she wanted uh she felt humiliated and ignored and uh on all of those things when indeed uh the you know the the, the monarchy was already beginning to, to founder uh when she entered it and she kind of rescued it by sure by, did yeah and of course she had that remarkable touch that charles doesn't have william and kate seem to harry and megan have it as well the ability to touch people and connect with them but uh charles has never been able to do that and i don't think he's capable of doing it because he's sort of emotionally stunted in a sense and did diana i mean i, I hate to ask this question but I, I it's so obvious i guess i can't as someone who came of age when diana was on every magazine cover in the world and she's absolutely beautiful right, nothing right. beats that I think it was, it was it white or shimmery dress that she wore to some event and she exposed one shoulder and all of us in high school were like, Oh my God, she's yeah, yeah, perfect. Yeah. Did yeah. she ever look at Charles and go, do you see all this? Like, why or, the hell do I, you want her? Like, take a look at me. What's the problem think, here? Don't you think? I mean, I'm sure. And I think people are still saying that. And by the way, uh, we are now learning what I, I mean, con we're getting confirmation from Harry in his new book. But they didn't want this. They did not want Charles to marry Camilla, even in 2005. You know, uh, they, uh, Harry apparently worried that she was going to be a, a wicked stepmother. Charles, uh, and then fast forwarding to uh, the year that he actually convinced the queen to let him marry Camilla, he only did that by promising that she would never be queen. Um, he sold this to the British people more or less, by saying she would never, she would always be princess consort, she would never have the title that would rightfully have gone to Diana. But uh, I knew from the get-go that he was not going to do that. I knew that he intended to uh, make her queen. It would be insulting to her in his mind to not let that happen. So there were little hints over the years. A schoolgirl comes up to Camilla, will you be queen? Well, we'll have to wait and see, won't we, was her answer. Mm -hmm. Charles had a similar response, a very kind of coy about the whole thing but it was a plan all along to convince the queen queen elizabeth to endorse camilla ultimately as queen and she did it only months before her death and it was a, a broadside to both uh, harry and william they did not think their father would uh, you know uh, go back on his promise and uh and so now we have queen camilla and i think it's going to be a moment uh it's going to shock the british people they're not going to be you know poll after poll shows that camilla is still not popular that the vast majority of, of the British people do not, I think it was 80% was the last figure I saw, do not want her to be queen, queen consort. Sure. Mm -hmm. um, so it's one thing to have that announced and it's another thing to see her crowned, you know, in that ceremony. It'll be fascinating when that, when they put that on her head and she'll be shaking like a leaf because she's nervous about the whole thing. But. Well, 
let's let's give Charles a little bit of credit here in the sense of what is it about Camilla that mm-hmm. he just can't shake? Soulmate, you know, and of course we they have they had this physical relationship early on, and I think it uh, never stopped. And uh, uh, there are all those kind of embarrassing revelations over the years, you know, likening himself to a tampon and all that stuff. Um, but uh, you know, it's uh clearly they were meant for each other she calls them two peas in a pod but it's interesting to see that there was an abrasive or a cold relationship between her and william and harry and any notion that she ever charmed them uh well that's just what blew out the window that never happened but would you agreed would you give camilla high marks for her dedication to service i mean she clearly is trying to work her way into hearts and minds of the British people through just work. I think she feels that uh, she's doing this for him because he needs it, you know, needs this to work. And uh, yes, I have to give her that kind of degree of credit, but don't forget this was, you know, just decades of, of planning and strategizing and scheming for one of a better word. <laughs> he always wanted to be. King's mistress. That was her goal. She wanted to be like her great grandmother, Alice Keppel. I mean, that opening line when she met uh, Charles, where she says, my, my great grandmother and your great, great grandfather were uh, lovers. How about it? You know, uh, she had all, already told her roommates because for a brief time, she you know, had a, a job, although she is the granddaughter of a baron. So she's part of the aristocracy. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, she told her roommates that they, when they asked why she wasn't going out with lords and viscounts and whatnot, she says, I'm holding out for a king. They thought she was joking. No, no, she, she meant that. And, uh, and I think uh, she never, although she always wanted to be the other woman in the king's life, she never wanted to be queen. And uh, I, wonder, I wonder if she ever read a biography of Queen Alexandra, uh, the wife of Edward VII. Right. And, well, and so she was she was the wife of Edward the Seventh, and she was not the other woman Alice Keppel was. Right. And Alexandra was so cognizant of their relationship. I mean, everybody was that yeah. on Edward the Seventh's deathbed, Edward the Seventh didn't call for Alice to come see him one last time. Queen Alexander. Alexandra reached out and said, "I'm you need to see the king one last time." That's incredible. Right. 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 Uh, and Keppel meant a, meant a bad end. Ultimately, she died of cirrhosis. But, uh, you know, I mean, she, she had a very rough life following the death of the king. Uh, but Queen Alexandra, by the way, and who was known as Princess Alexandra, for the most part, was uh, incredibly popular. You know, she was very hard of hearing, very beautiful. Beautiful. And, mm-hmm. Yeah, and everyone uh, loved her more than, I think, Edward VII. He turned out not to be a not bad king, too. He gets high marks for that. Um, well, well, when your nickname is when your nickname as Prince is Edward the Caresser, you're right. <laughs> instead of well, Edward the Confessor, right, right. <laughs> no, he was indeed uh, that. Uh, you know, Keppel was just one of many, but uh, but the most important one, I think, in his life certainly. Um, <laughs> but again, you know, are you looking at? Uh, You'd mentioned that the childhood of of, of Charles mirrored that those that of other king uh, other monarchs. And I don't, I think his was worse. I mean, uh, well, you had the Hanoverians where, you know, George the first hated his son who became George the second and he returned that hate and George the second hated Frederick, the Prince of Wales, 
right. uh, who was the father of George the third, who died before coming to the throne. I mean, these Hanoverians just, they, they hated each other so much. I mean, not just, I mean, like real hate. I can't be around you. You're despicable. You make me sick, that sort of stuff. But not as in, not as small children. <laughs> I mean, it's tr true. True, yeah. but as they grew up, they just couldn't. The, the relationships were so fraught, and it just doesn't right. seem that that Charles's gets any better with Phillips. Right. Well, I look at these little incidents that, that any parent could identify with, um, where you know, or, or look with uh, in dismay. I mean, Charles goes through as a child uh, a tonsillectomy, which at that time is a little risky. Uh, severe case of measles, also in the fifties, mm -hmm. a little you know risky falls down and breaks his ankle, falling down the stairs. Uh, uh, at 13, he has an emergency appendectomy. Uh, it goes on and on. At no time was he ever visited by his parents. And in the case of the emergency of appendectomy, uh, the queen was uh, hosting uh, Eleanor Roosevelt, Buckingham Palace, and Eleanor asked where Charles was. And she said, oh, well, you know, he's having an emergency. <laughs> he's having his appendix operated on about, uh, you know, down the block basically. And the queen never, you know, and, and uh, Rose, uh, Eleanor Roosevelt was just shocked and horrified that a mother would have that attitude. Because she, was, Eleanor Roosevelt sweated out her children serving in World War II. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, she was a normal person, <laughs> you know, but uh, I don't think, again, the queen is somebody who's very, was very much uh, about service and duty and the job that she had and her dogs. And her, and her dogs <laughs> and her horses and her horses oh, by she the came way, to kentucky horses. one time just to come you know uh, oh, yeah. uh, Crazy. let uh, me ask a question you were talking about uh, no, no, i'm going to jump in on the horse front i think people mm -hmm. should go know ahead that the cost cutting moves that charles has made recently was to sell the queen's 15 uh 15 of the queen's thoroughbred horses and then put camilla in charge of the of the queen's royal stable so that's a kind of a symbolic gesture. Ouch. Yeah. Um, we talked about Charles as a, as a child mm -hmm. in relation to his father. You know, we all learn things from our parents, good or ill. Mm -hmm. How describe Charles as, you know, basically a single parent for all these years and how did he act towards his children? Right. Well, uh, early on playful, uh, pillow fights, all that sort of thing, but most of the time not there. I mean, the same thing with Diana, even though we have this, uh, Diana could be very affectionate. We know that in contrast to the queen, whenever Diana came back uh, from a trip or anything, we saw her sweep the kids up in her arms and that sort of thing. Uh, but uh, I think Harry would acknowledge and William that the, the parents were not around as much as as they would have liked. Now, uh, his uh, Charles's response to Diana's death, I think, is fascinating. Here, at this point uh, in 1997, when Diana is in the car crash, William is uh, six, is 15. His brother is about to turn 13. And uh, Charles uh, is more devastated and stunned by Diana's death than, than anyone else. I mean, he gets the news in Balmoral, and um, he's, I think it was uh, one of his uh, aides said that it was, he, when he was told that she had died, it was this uh, howl of uh, grief and uh, having to, you know, he was very, he was crying, he was weeping. He, when, he, when, he, when he flew to Paris to retrieve Diana's body, and by the way, the queen didn't want that to happen, but Charles insisted that the British people would not tolerate it if he didn't show her respect. So 
Charles yeah. about save the monarchy at that point. He did. He did. Absolutely. I mean, he, the irony here is that he brings it to the brink of destruction by forcing uh, this divorce. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, now, he just was not going to. I mean, Diana is the one who triggered it finally with the Panorama, famous Panorama interview. But I mean, it was Charles' insistence on his relationship with maintaining that with Camilla that really brought them to the brink of destruction. But then he saves it. And he saves it by showing, giving Diana her due. But the moment he walks into that hotel, into that hospital, and sees Diana lying there in her coffin, because I interviewed the nurses who handled her body and uh, other people on the scene, and, and they had actually, you know, uh, placed her in the coffin with a glass uh, topped coffin. Uh, we had a window in it, but she was uh, lying there and the air conditioner uh, was blowing her hair. It was, a, uh, it was a very odd scene. And Charles walks in and the nurses say, it looks as if he's, he looks as if he'd been struck by an unseen force was the way they put it and reeled backwards. And uh, everyone thought he was gonna pass out. I mean, he was completely devastated and shocked and, uh, and yet, you know, he, he managed to hold it together and with Tony Blair convinced the Queen to return from Balmoral, fly the flag at half-mast after the British people had been screaming for, for them to do something, and then give her the kind of funeral that she deserved. You know, she wasn't, the Queen had said before she's not entitled to a, a royal funeral because she's no longer a member of the royal family. <laughs> they gave her one anyway. Like it's not noticed. the 16th century. And yeah, and, and there was that tidal wave of flowers that just engulfed all of London. It was remarkable. And, uh, you know, it, 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 I think Charles uh, tried to get his sons through that, that period. But I think he also regrets the fact that he was convinced, he along with Philip, convinced the boys to walk behind their mother's coffin, which was a very emotionally scarring experience. They still talk about it. They, uh, Earl Spencer, the Diana's brother, who walked with them behind Diana's mm -hmm. coffin, said it was like walking through a tunnel of grief because there were a million people lining the streets. And uh, and, and there was that drum beat, you know, reminded me of the Kennedy, mm -hmm. John F. Kennedy's funeral, this haunting right. drum beat. And um, uh, so that was something I think that Charles now wishes he hadn't done, forced them to do that because it's left, I mean, they're, they're still going going through some stuff about it. Uh, Harry has said that just flying into London is a triggering experience for him because it brings him back. And I was thinking during uh, both Philip's and especially uh, the Queen's funeral, he must have been reliving. They both, you could see sure. the look on their faces. They were reliving that, that horrible time. It's hard to tell people now who weren't really, I mean, you know, uh, when, when Diana died, I mean, it was, the whole world was in stunned still Everyone so remembers. young still so beautiful and then did jfk jr die after her two years later yeah. well, still so young still so handsome well i mean I, you know i wrote a book about about that and and uh i remember i was covering the funeral because i'd written a, 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 a best-selling biography of a, a couple of them of, about the kennedys so i was on the today show covering the funeral uh with katie couric uh, commenting on it and a she turned to me at one point and said, you think we're overreacting, you know, because the whole country was in a state of shock and grief. And I said, no, not at all. I mean, this was a, this guy, this was a, a guy who really was, uh, it wasn't so much the loss of him, but it was symbolic of the, the Kennedy, you know, tragedy. Sure. Yeah. You uh, have a 
significant career as a journalist. And we're talking with Christopher Anderson, author of The King, The Life of Charles III. So let me ask you a couple of questions, and I'll just pose it this way. Talk to me about the relationship, please. Talk to us, the relationship between Charles and the press mm. and Charles and historians. Well, I think the, the press he's always had, uh, <laughs> you know, trouble with. I think he, the degree of, uh, he feels a, a horrible intrusiveness on the part of the press. And of course, that, that's only logical. Uh, there is a great, I don't think he's handled it as well as his own sons did for quite a long time. Harry is now kind of falling off the wagon, but the, uh, there was a wonderful time when there was a very telling moment when uh, they're on a ski vacation just before the boys had taken him skiing, just before his wedding to Camilla. And, uh, and Charles just suddenly starts bad-mouthing everybody, <laughs> all, all the press who are right in front of him. Everyone could hear it. It's being recorded. And they're trying to, and they're smiling. Just keep smiling, Dad. Uh, and I think that really spoke volumes. I mean, he's always had a deep, deep resentment of, uh, uh, of the press and the working press and especially the tabloid press, and, as you know, which is relentless uh, in, in England. As far as historians are concerned, I don't, I mean, it's anybody's guess how he's going to handle this job. He, he's, you know, he's obsessed with heading the Commonwealth. And yet I think unless he gets that kind of, is able to build that kind of relationship that his mother had with his subjects. Um, he's in danger of having one country after another slip away from the Commonwealth. Right now, the Commonwealth, the one third of the population of the world uh, is part of the Commonwealth, 53 countries. And uh, a number of them are thinking of bailing on the, uh, you know, having uh, bailing monarchy, uh, the monarchy and because he's technically the king, the uh, king of fifteen countries right now, um, so we'll just have to wait and see what happens. I mean, he feels like a mo Is he? Uh, he's that's what makes him paradoxical. Is he's both modern. Uh, he has ideas that uh, no one who's occupied that position have ever even entertained before. But he's also a staunch traditionalist. I mean, here's this guy who just fought tooth and nail to maintain fox hunting, you know, <laughs> and rural. <laughs> that's food, right. Things like that. Of the great polo player, you know, all those things that we associate with another time. In your mind, does Charles III possess a particular philosophy of kingship? Well, uh, you know, I, I think he would, if anybody expects him to be a placeholder uh, for him to keep uh, the thrown warm for William, they've got another thing coming. I think he was going to be an activist king. I think that's what he wants to be. I think he wants to, he'll be kicking people off the royal payroll. He'll be trying to find ways to economize, but also to, you know, as, he, as you said, streamline the monarchy, slim down the monarchy is one of the things he's saying, so that it's more palatable to future generations. But he has but to preserve the grandeur. Exactly. And you have, and, and we'll see that with the coronation. I mean, I, 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 right away, people were saying, oh, well, he's, going to be the king he's talked about uh making all these changes so obviously he's going to be a smaller uh, uh event well absolutely not because he realizes that uh circuses like this are what really keep uh the whole thing going i don't think he'll be able to match george the fourth but he'll uh he'll do something george the <laughs> fourth right. i think had the most expensive coronation in history another another guy who hated his father and vice versa 
<laughs> well, that leads me right to my next question. So George III reigns for 60 years, 1760 right. to 1820, then, mm -hmm. you know, spends several years basically uh, demented. Right. So, sure. you know, his son, George IV, has to wait all that time. Edward mm -hmm. VII, who we were talking about just a few minutes ago, his mother reigned for 64 years, 1837 to 1901. He has right. to wait all that time. So right. Charles has waited 70 years. Mm -hmm. I mean, is it people like Charles, I mean, you know, it's happened before in British history. How do you think that he is going to make his mark and be activist? Well, I mean, again, Edward VII, everyone thought was something of, a, you know, he was just a, a, a playboy king, a, a mm -hmm. prince, people thought. But he turned out, as I recall, to be a rather effective monarch, was thought of as that when he passed away. Um, Certainly in foreign policy, when he basically was the, the driver behind the alignment that ended up you know the coalitions that fought each other in world war one he put us on the side of or put us put germany or britain on the side of france and russia right. because he and the kaiser hated each other well of course world war one is still a mystery to me i have no idea what it was about <laughs> I mean, it was, <laughs> you know it was all we could, they were all cousins i mean or whatever but yes uh yeah principles were not involved uh, but uh, look um he has a lot of opportunities, but the funny thing is something is, as seemingly superficial as this row between his sons could prove fatal. You know, it could, because all we're paying attention to is, is that. And, uh, and Harry, I have to say, it sounds like he has pulled no punches in this memoir. It sounds mm -hmm. as if letting it all out there. And, and I have to say, I have to hand it to him. You know, it's better than some whitewashed job, you know, where he's not laying it all I also think that these this this kind of tension between him I've written about this a, a, a book before this that I wrote called Brothers and Wives about the relationship between mm -hmm. the Sussexes and the Cambridges uh, I talked about the tensions between them and now suddenly again now he's confirming that indeed uh, he really resented the fact that William never got criticized for anything much uh, compare and was doing pretty much the same stuff that Harry was doing. But um, Harry's Harry's saying the only way the family can come together is if I tear it apart first, and that just yeah. seems to be a bit oh, odd. It is odd, and I think uh, you know he has an awfully uh, he wants his father and his brother back. He says, but he has a, an awfully odd way of showing it. <laughs> Certainly what? not the approach I would take. Uh, <laughs> or you'd ask Kate to take, or your the other daughter to take. <laughs> yeah, you know it's funny because I was oh, right. Oh yeah. Um, and it was funny that uh, Kate Middleton, another Kate, is so central to this. And uh, William's feeling that Megan in kept insulting his wife. And uh, here you have the kind of, uh, there are cultural differences, I think, that might have made this kind of, um, these kinds of misunderstandings inevitable. But Megan is the kind of person from Southern California, very American, very frank. Uh, you know, uh, she's kind of the the goop generation, <laughs> and uh, and and th that does not, you know, there's just ample mis opportunity for misunderstanding between somebody like that and people in Great Britain in general, much less people in the royal family. So and Diana you, and Sarah Ferguson seem to have oh, gotten yeah. along okay. Oh yeah, but then Diana dropped her over something incredibly petty. <laughs> Let me ask you just a couple of questions and we're going to get to the five questions that all of our guests answer. Uh, what are what are Charles's thoughts or opinions about the United States and or Americans? Well, of course, that's Diana land. 
you know, they, Diana felt that the American people were behind her 100%. And she was right, I think. I mean, uh, always felt uh, a little bit of hostility. His first trip here, you know, Richard Nixon was trying to palm him off on Trisha. On <laughs> Trisha, yeah, that's right. Right. <laughs> Poor it's Ed Cox. Yeah. Well, yeah. And the same, uh, Nixon did the same thing with, uh, you know, uh, W, you know, George W. Bush tried to get, get uh, put him and Trisha together as well. At least but, Trisha um, looked like her mother. Yeah. <laughs> as opposed to Julie, God love her, who looks just like her father. No, that's true. That's true. No, Trisha was, yeah. But, um, you know, so there's always been a little, I think Charles has always felt a little uneasy here, but you know, he's really gotten one of the principal uh, purpose things that the Royals do. And, you know, Harry and Meghan are criticized for monetizing everything, for making these gigantic deals, a $100, $100 million deal with Netflix, a $20 million book deal just for one book uh, for Harry. God knows what they're going to get for Meghan's book. Um, but um, the fact of the matter is that Charles has been a big money raiser uh, for a long time. I and mean, he's taken sacks full of cash from Saudi princes. He's flown here to hobnob with the Annenberg, going all the way back to the Annenberg, people like that, the, the, the super rich Americans have funded many of his uh, charities and uh, and to some degree his lifestyle. I mean, the loaning of yachts and planes and all this stuff. So that goes with the territory. Uh, you know, there's, it, it seems like um, it doesn't, it's not as craven as one might think within right. the context of the way that they, they behave. Money is a big deal. You know, Sarah Ferguson got in trouble for trying to, you know, was it Nutrisystem or something? She was hawking well, she did that, but I, oh yeah, she did that. But I mean, remember the, when she was uh, caught trying to uh, sell the influence uh, uh, connection to her husband, yeah. Prince then husband Prince Andrew, for seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars by the same <laughs> fake, you know, undercover <laughs> reporter that had done it before to somebody else. <laughs> Well, the British royal, the British aristocracy has fallen in love with with American money since the last half of the 19th century, when the robber oh, yeah. barons and the industrialists all came. Ask a, ask Mister, ask the Churchill family. Right. All the, <laughs> all the yeah, exactly. Two final yeah. quick questions. One was Charles ever, ever going to abdicate before his reign in favor of his son? Oh, a my God, and. No. And B, were you surprised given that the first Charles got his head cut off and the second Charles was probably the randiest monarch the British have ever had? Were you surprised mm -hmm. he didn't change and become George VII as opposed to Charles III? So anyway, those are my two quick questions. Well, the weird things, well, first of course, he would never, he waited too long for this. Oh my gosh, he got in trouble in 1993, I think it was. No, 1998. And now this is where the crown got it wrong. They said that he tried to suggest, you know, that the queen abdicate much earlier. But in 1998, after Diana died, he definitely um, uh, let a person doing a documentary on him, uh, let it be known that he wanted his, he would be delighted, was the word, if his mother abdicated, stepped aside. And uh, she was furious, furious when he did it. And he had to apologize profusely. So he was not ever going to relinquish uh, his time on the throne or shorten it or anything. And the queen uh, had all these examples of other people abdicating. I mean, my gosh, the emperor of Japan has abdicated. Well, but Pope has, you know, based fundamentally, uh, he retired uh, Benedict. Uh, during her reign, one uh, sovereign after another of all these other countries stepped aside. So the, uh, you know, when they got too old, 
And, uh, but she wasn't going to do it. And uh, I think Charles was embittered by that. And so to some extent, and so when the job is now that the job has finally landed in his lap, he has no intention of uh, shortening his time on the throne. No, I don't see that at all. He might have had she abdicated it with some deal, you know, that he mm -hmm. uh, stepped aside for William, because William, obviously, William and Kate are the future of the monarchy. You know, there's no question that they're the ones that are going to have to, if it's not severely damaged uh, in the next several years, in the early part of Charles's reign. Charles III doesn't surprise you? Oh, no. Well, you know, he admired both Charles I and Charles II. And he had pretty favorable words. I, I think it's, uh, you know, they both, you know, how old was Charles II when he died? 50-something, 50 56, something like that? Died in 1685, I think. Right. But I mean, he was only in his 50s, I think. Uh, and yeah. So, and of course, he, both of them, of course, basically were the, I mean, ruled as an absolute, you know, they dissolved mm -hmm. parts and all that. I mean, the second one did. Um, so I think if he could have his way, he, you know, Charles would get rid of, would dissolve Parliament. <laughs> that's, that's he made he a would... joke to that effect when he talk, yeah. spoke before the House of Lords, right? Right. If I'd yes, been like either did. of my two namesakes. Right, exactly. So I, you know, I, so it doesn't surprise me. And of course, you know, it's, it's British history. And, and there, for whatever reason, I think historians view, well, he was a very popular, uh, Charles II was. Restoration Charlie. Right, very, very much. Uh, I mean, I think he was widely regarded as one of the most popular kings, and so perhaps that figures into it as well. Although he had many flaws <laughs> and many mistresses, uh, many mistresses. Right. Is there a? Is it just one last quick question? Forgive me, I keep saying that, but I'm enjoying this conversation much, <laughs> and I'm very grateful for your time. Uh, is there a British royalty movie or TV show that you think? gets it or got it right well i don't i uh see i'm a fan of the crown i mean i think when J J dame judy uh, dent should get off her high horse here you know <laughs> i mean it is it is fiction Some <laughs> close to the truth there are many instances where they're they're you know they, they take liberties and they acknowledge it but i think it's uh it's pretty great and and uh i'm a big fan of the king the king's speech Mm -hmm. uh and uh uh the madness of king george the third was the goodie <laughs> too. you know there's a great know, I, there's a great, great trivia this is this is shows you the british mentality towards americans i love this <laughs> so when the in in the united states it's the movie was the madness of king george right but in great britain it was called george the third just george the third yeah. And they changed the title for the United States because they were scared that the Americans would think it was just a sequel. <laughs> they have such high regard for us, right? <laughs> <laughs> We've reached the point in the Leaders and Legends podcast where we ask the same five questions of all of our guests. Christopher Anderson, are you ready? I, 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 do I have to answer with a yes or no or, or one word? Or... It's even simpler than that. Oh, okay. All former journalists are the ones who go, I don't know about these questions. And I'm like, hey, I've been ambushed more than once. I get it. Okay. What, was your, what was your first job? As a reporter for the uh, uh, Livermore Herald and News in California when I was 16. And uh, that's how long I've been doing it. And that, that was a daily paper. What it's was your first yes. concert? <laughs> oh, that's... 
that you paid for that you can remember going to because you grew up in the best time for concerts yeah yeah but i'm just thinking hmm. oh i i know actually i covered it though i'd rather say the one that i covered sure uh the ultimate uh rock concert the the stones the rolling stones and the hell's angels oh yeah i was there you're kidding me no no i was right there when the whole thing happened man i was uh, i i (laughs) i may have been the only person there in a blazer (laughs) (laughs) well if it was leather you'd been okay no 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 i was i was writing for time at that point i uh started doing as a full-time stringer for time magazine in 1960 um nine i actually and i'd been one for the new york times before that I, on the phone i never said how old i was so you know they, they had no idea as sure. long as you did the work did the stories so i went to the altamont covered it for time magazine and it was fascinating and uh, and i'll never forget walking that poor fellow who uh, uh who was uh, stabbed to death on the stage seeing that and just th- just standing there and watching mick jagger on the stage and his harlequin thing uh Sympathy for the devil, and I think mm-hmm. at the time the stabbing occurred, or the murder occurred on stage. It was uh, he was singing um, "Under My Thumb." It, it was all just very uh, bizarre and and grotesque. And I thought, and I remember saying to myself, "I will never forget this scene," and because it's it was just unbelievable what was happening. Well, I hope you don't find this too obsequious. But if I am so lucky to get uh, your daughter, Kate Anderson Brower, back on to talk about her biography of Elizabeth Taylor, I'm going to suggest highly and frequently that she write a biography of you. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Nah, don't think that'll happen. You know, I could tell you what her what her first concert was because I took her when she what? was like 13. She answered the question when she was on. I just don't remember her answer. Well, I think it was New Kids on the Block. <laughs> you win that particular you win that fight i don't think she would have told you that one <laughs> <laughs> number three if you could suggest any book for someone to read which book would you recommend oh but i'm you know i i was a gatsby nut before anybody else really paid any attention to it. so i'm i'm a very big fitzgerald fan Number four, if you could suggest, excuse me, number four, if you could witness any event in history, be there in person as it happens, which event would you choose? Oh my God. Any event in history. Wow. That's great. Um, and scary, isn't it? I mean, there are just so many. Uh, I suppose. Uh, well, it will sound bizarre, but I would say the assassination of Lincoln. You'd want to be in the box or in the crowd? or <laughs> I want to be close enough to see what was going on, but that's one. Well, I mean, it, what, I, am I supposed to say the you know, birth of Jesus Christ? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that's that, 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 second thought, the birth of Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> Last question, and this is going to be kind of an interesting one for you because so many of the people who've been given as answers previous in our Mm. podcast are probably Mm. people you have actually dined with at some point. If you could have dinner with anyone living today, Mm. living today, two hours off the record, just to chat, whom would you choose? Oh, I hate the off the record part. What's the point? 
<laughs> well, <laughs> that's a great, that's a great caveat, but maybe they would just be a little bit, you've worked with these folks. They're a little bit more forthcoming if they don't have a pen and paper in front of them. Mm. Well, uh, on this wall, you've got everybody from Hepburn and, and Lauren Bacall to uh, Ronald Reagan and, uh, uh, you know, and uh, the Henry Fonda and that Gloria Swanson I interviewed, forgot. To. But, um, you know, uh, the one thing they have in common is they're all dead. <laughs> so living today, would you want to have anyone in the world? What about King Charles III? Hmm. Well, I guess I should say that, shouldn't I? <laughs> you can say whoever you want. Well, this is going to take a long time. We'll say that for now. I should come back to you with, with a more thoughtful answer. You have is been listening. <laughs> true, true. We want people to think that is the most, and he's an interesting person, and I wouldn't mind that, but there might be somebody else as well. But well, yes, but, uh, Charles would be, if, he, if it could be on the record, that would be great. And he would be fun, you know, the fun Charles, the fun, not the dour. No, we wouldn't want that. Wouldn't you have that. been listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, an Indiana-based public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends, LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn and NFP, a national insurance broker with strong local content. Our guest has been Christopher Anderson. He is the author of The King, The Life of Charles III. We'll put a link so that folks can buy your book. It's terrific. I love your writing. Thank you so much for your time. It was a real blast to get a chance to talk to you. I'm grateful. It was fun. You got, you got to give me another shot. Who do you want to come on and talk about? <laughs> We'll see. Well, well I, you know, uh, I, that last question was it was those last five questions were great. I have to say, you didn't ask me the one thing I thought you were going to ask. And what was that, sir? That Barbara Walters asked uh, Kate Hepburn, which is, if you were a tree, what kind of tree would you be? <laughs> <laughs> well, let me ask you a question that I ask people who come on twice. What's the funniest movie of all time? Oh man! Oh no! I. I'm going to tell you, I've asked a half dozen people and they've all given the exact same answer. Really? Oh my gosh. Really? I'm trying to think of who they would. Uh, well, you got to tell me what they said. And National Lampoon's opinion. Animal House. Oh. No, no, not by a long shot. I think National Lampoon's Vacation. I think National Lampoon's uh, Christmas Vacation was better than Animal House. <laughs> but. Uh, I'll come back to you with something. It'll probably be some, you know, uh, terribly, you know, clever. Uh, you know, I, uh, yeah, no. I'm a, I'm a big old movie fan, as you can imagine. It happened um, one night. Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. Uh, yeah, it happened one night. That's perfect. Perfect. <laughs> Please come yeah, on again, and I'll, I'll come up with some new <laughs> questions, I promise. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Fun. I will talk to uh, Katie. <laughs> Thank you, please. That's very okay. grind. Thank okay. you. Okay. See you. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com.
This podcast was produced and edited by Chris Spangle and Leaders and Legends, LLC. If you're interested in starting a podcast or taking yours to the next level, please contact us at leadersandlegends.net.